Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 says this, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and having, having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and then he took, them, took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. It's interesting, some of the most famous songs over the last half century have been songs that have been very profoundly misunderstood. Um, for example, the song Imagine by John Lennon. It's a song that's been sung in many different contexts, often uh, for fundraisers or times in our country where we just need inspiration. It's been a song that many covers have been sung uh, uh, with that song. And uh, what's interesting is that John Lennon said that it was actually kind of an ode to communism. Uh, he said this about the song, that it's anti-religious, anti-nationalistic, anti-conventional, anti-capitalistic, but because it's sugar-coated, it's accepted. Now, now I understand what you have to do, he said. Put your political message across with a little bit of honey. The song, Born in the USA, is a song that um, has been used at political rallies for generations. It was the first time it was used was in 1984 at, with the Ronald Reagan campaign. Um, and, you know, it's a song that, you know, kind of pumps people up and gets people in this patriotic mindset. But it actually wasn't a patriotic song. It was actually a protest song. Um, it was a song that was written because... Um, um, Bruce Springsteen saw how Vietnam veterans were being treated, um, and basically what he was saying, um, you know, I'm an American, I was born in the USA, how could, you know, I be treated this way? So it was a protest song, but it was used as kind of a patriotic song. Um, song Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Taylor, unknown to most people, it was a vampire love story. Um, the, the song The Time of Your Life by Green Day, um, this is a song that's been played at many high school proms, it's been played um, at graduations, and it's kind of a song that people are like just kind of wishing people to have the time of their life. 
Um, and actually, the original title of the song was Good Riddance. And it was actually written because the lead singer's girlfriend moved away to Ecuador. And it was written with this kind of frustration of go have the time of your life. People don't see it that way. They misunderstand the song. And then the two that are kind of at the top of the list, uh, number one, there's one called uh, You're Beautiful by James Blunt or Blount. I don't know which it is. Um, but it's a song that's been a first dance song for many people at a number of different weddings and um, this kind of love song. And if you look, li listen to the lyrics, it's not really a love song. It's like a, kind of a really creepy song. Um, it's about this guy, creepy dude who's high on drugs and he's reveling in the beauty of a stranger. And he kind of falls in love with this stranger that he sees on a subway or something. And he laments and is in despair because he can't be with this woman that is with somebody else. It's not really the best first dance song, but people <laughs> misunderstand this song. And then at the top of the list is the good old Macarena. The Macarena. Do you know what the Macarena is about? It's in Spanish, so, you know, if you don't know Spanish, you, you wouldn't realize this. But it's about a young woman who cheats on her boyfriend with two of his friends while he's enlisting in the army. Really uplifting song, right? little misunderstood when it's being sung by kids and, you know, at these parties and things like that. But it's amazing how far a song or a movie or whatever the case may be can get from its intended message and how it can be misunderstood and kind of take a life of its own. And I think this passage that we're looking at today is one of those passages that can be misunderstood. Because we read this passage and on the surface it seems like Jesus is being kind of callous or cruel, heartless. Uh, actually, one commentator uh, I read actually said that Jesus had bad manners. You know, and so this, this is a passage that can really be really misunderstood. And so this woman is coming to Jesus. She's crying out, and she's, you know, you can kind of sense the mother's desperation. She'll do anything for her daughter, and her daughter is, is oppressed by demons. And so she comes to Jesus and she's crying out, following after him. And how does Jesus respond? He just completely ignores her, pretends like he doesn't hear. Then she keeps persisting, keeps crying out, keeps calling out to Jesus. Disciples get fed up. They come to Jesus. You've got to do something. Like, she's driving us nuts. We're go we're, you know, we've been walking for all this time. She's just crying, screaming. Like, you've got to do something with this lady. And he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Then the woman comes up to him and bows down before him and says, Lord, heal, heal my daughter. Lord, help me. And he responds and says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Seems pretty rude. Seems pretty heartless. Seems pretty callous. It seems like he's just kind of overlooking this lady who's in this distress. Her daughter is sick. Her daughter is struggling. But to understand this passage, I think we need to understand a little bit about the context of where Jesus is and who this woman is. And as we look at this story, I think that we'll find that this story is not a story of Jesus being rude and cruel. It's a story of Jesus showing match, unmatchless, unfathomable grace to this woman and to her people. So what do we know about this passage? We know that Jesus is in the region of Tyre and Sidon, the region of the Canaanites. We know that this woman is described as being a Canaanite. 
Now, from the scriptures, we know one thing about the Canaanites. First of all, they were the people that were in the land of promise that God had promised to Abraham. But there's one other thing we know, that the Canaanites were wicked. That, that's kind of the, 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 the description of them throughout scripture. The Canaanites are an evil, wicked people. In Leviticus chapter 20, the author of Leviticus, Moses, describes uh, all these different types of wickedness, starting with child sacrifices, uh, sacrificing their children to this god Moloch. Um, Starts with that, goes on to consulting uh, mediums, talking to the dead. He talks about various forms of sexual immorality, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, incest. That's not even to mention their pervasive idolatry. And then after going through all of these things, at the end of Leviticus chapter 20, uh, Moses basically says, and the Canaanites, they're doing all of them and more. He says in Leviticus 20, 23 to 24, and you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God. Give, give, I, the, I am the Lord your God. Give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. And so as a result of, of the Canaanites' wickedness, God allows them to kind of get to the high point of, of their wickedness. You know, in, in one passage in, in, in Exodus says that the, the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. And so God is even patient with the Canaanites, but it gets to a point where they're just so wicked and all the intentions of their their hearts are wicked that God resolves to drive them out of the land and he commands the Israelites to drive them out of their land, to destroy them, to have nothing to do with them. And Israel didn't do that. Throughout their history, they only partially did that and they tended to kind of intermarry with them uh, and commingle with them. And every time that they did that, they were led into idolatry and to wickedness. And now hundreds of years later, of course, uh, the promised land has been conquered by the Israelites, but some Canaanites remain, and this ethnic um, lineage of Canaanites remains. And so Jesus enters this area, enemy territory, so to speak, the, the land of the Canaanites, the land of the spiritual enemies of the people of God. You know, when you think about kind of the ancient Israelite viewpoint, there were sometimes, you know, there was good things that were said about other Gentile nations like the Egyptians, even though, you know, they did some bad things. But it, like the Canaanites, they're like all bad. And so Jesus enters into this region of the Canaanites with these people who are, are steeped in this wickedness. And we don't know anything particularly about this particular woman. But if she's anything like her ancestors, she's probably very wicked. She's probably a pagan, doesn't worship the true God. And so Jesus encounters her. And then the question is, why does Jesus treat her so sternly? I think there's probably two reasons. Number one, at this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is kind of giving hints of the fact that he's there for the whole world, but it hasn't been fully revealed yet. And so we see that with the centurion that we looked at several chapters ago in the book of Matthew where Jesus heals the centurion who's a Gentile. Um, And we see several kind of hints of that in the scriptures, but it hasn't been fully revealed yet. But secondly, and I think most, most importantly for this particular passage, is that Jesus is trying to test and draw out her faith. And Jesus knows, you know, he's going to answer the request. He's not just simply being cruel and callous. He's trying to draw out her faith, test her faith. And also, we don't know kind of the intonation of how Jesus was saying this. You know, he may have been saying it in a whimsical tone. We don't know how he was saying it. All we have is the text. 
But I think what he's doing, he's trying to test and draw out her faith. And again, she comes to Jesus with this mother's desperation. She'll do anything for her child. First, After first ignoring her, again, Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, this would be kind of the, the common rabbinic ju- viewpoint during this time period. It's like the Canaanites have been conquered. The Canaanites are a wicked, evil people. You know, the Messiah is to come for his people, for the people of Israel. And, and you know, kind of Jesus, in essence, was saying, you know, we are the victors. I've come for my people, the people of Israel. So, you know, that's my mission. And so my, my mission is to feed them. Um, all true statements in a sense. But then the woman makes a statement. I think that it's the most profound statement that anyone in the scriptures ever made apart from Christ. She says this. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Yes, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Do you know what she's saying here? She's saying... Even if you feed your people, the crumbs will be enough for me. Even if you feed your people, there'll be enough left over for me. And the truth is, she's absolutely right. And Jesus goes on to show that in the ensuing narratives that happen after this. After this, he continues on by the Sea of Galilee, and it says in the text that he goes up on this mountain, and all of these people are coming to him, and these people are Mostly Gentiles. Why do we know that they're Gentiles? Because in verse 31 it says that they were glorifying the God of Israel. They're Gentiles. Many of them were probably Canaanites. And so he goes up this mountain and he starts healing all of these Gentiles, perhaps even Canaanites. And then he goes a little bit further. And and the Gentiles, these Gentiles, Canaanites have been there for about three days. And Jesus looks and he says... You know, I'm, I have compassion on the people. They've been here all of this time. And again, just as an aside, it's remarkable that they were there for that amount of time, just listening to Jesus. But they've been there for three, three days, and Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowds, and I don't want them to faint along the way. And what does he do? He feeds these people, 4,000 plus women and children. Sounds familiar to another episode that we saw several chapters ago. And sometimes people will look at these, these episodes in the Bible and they'll say, okay, you know, there's a feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And it's like they're kind of similar, right? I mean, they're, they're you know, different numbers, but it's kind of a similar setting on a mountain. You know, the kind of a fear that they're going to faint along the way. Jesus multiplies the, the bread and the fish. So there's some similarities. And sometimes people will think, well, you know, they just conflated these two episodes, and it's really one thing that happened, and they got some of the details wrong. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think what's happening here is that Jesus is doing this again. The first time was for the, Gent- for the Jews. The second time was for the Gentiles. And in what he does here, uh, look at what it says in the text. It says that they, were, they ate, they all ate in verse 37, and were satisfied. What this woman says is completely true. That, her, that the people of God can be fed, and Jesus fed the 5,000. And even after, after that's over, the crumbs are enough for the Gentiles. That God's supply is great enough for all who would come to him. And so while Jesus' plan isn't fully broadcast at this point, there's a hint in the scriptures that Jesus has not just come for Israel, but for the nations And so while it appears on the surface this is a story of bad manners, it's a story 
of amazing grace. You know the, what Jesus tells this woman in this passage? He tells her, he says, woman, great is your faith. Some translate that, dear woman, great is your faith. That's the, she's the only person in all of Matthew that Jesus described as having great faith. The only person. The only person that was close was the centurion. And to, to the centurion, he said, um, your faith is greater than anybody in Israel. She's the only one who's described as having great faith in all of the book of Matthew. And so not, Jesus isn't having bad manners. He's drawing out this woman's faith. And then he's commending her and saying, you have faith unlike any faith I've seen. This is incredible, amazing faith. And then he goes on to prove that in healing Gentiles and feeding the Gentiles, that even, even after I feed my people, there's more than enough supply for the nations. And so part of the beauty of this passage is that Jesus didn't come just for religious, respectable people, but he came for his enemies, people who were far from him, the, the, the arch enemies of the people of God. He came even for Canaanites the people who deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth, that he came even for them and that his supply is enough for them. But also as we look at this passage, we see Jesus' commendation of that great faith. And I think all of us as believers aspire to that great faith. I think the disciples aspired to that great faith, but how are they described often? You of little faith. Oftentimes that's the way that we're described, I think, Sometimes, you know, we, we struggle. We want to be people of great faith, but we, you know, maybe we're fear, filled with fear and anxiety. Maybe we're like Peter who looked to the waves rather than our Savior sometimes. Maybe we're like Thomas looking for more evidence than we need. We want to be people of great faith, but sometimes we're people of little faith. And I think this passage provides us with some guidelines, kind of a template to, to look at. To, what should we be striving towards? What does great faith look like? Even though we sometimes are people of little faith, what would it look like if I was a person of great faith? I think this passage shows us a few things. The first thing I think it shows us is that great faith endures even when God is silent. Great faith endures even when God is silent. That's the first response that this woman gets. Silence. She's crying out to Jesus. Jesus isn't answering. There's no response. And sometimes we'll face circumstances in our life where we'll cry out to God and we won't, won't hear any response. Maybe we're crying out for direction. We're saying, God, show me what my next career move is. God, show me who I should marry. God, show me what my next step should be. And, and though our hearts are sincere, though we want to follow God, it's like God doesn't answer. Or maybe we have circumstances in our life where um, maybe we just wonder, like, where is God? Like, maybe we have physical disabilities that we're dealing with. Maybe we have mental issues that we deal with. Uh, maybe we've been a victims of some really terrible things, and we wonder, like, where is God? And, and sometimes we struggle with that. Um, Turkish theologian Zaya Merrill writes this, Where is God when millions of his children are being persecuted in the most brutal ways? Why does he keep silent in the middle of persecution, but speak loudly in the middle of conferences with famous speakers and worship bands? I have prayed many times like Luther, bless us, Lord, even curse us, but don't remain silent. Sometimes we encounter the silence of God, but great faith endures even when God is silent. 
And why is God silent? Well, there could be a number of different reasons, but I think one reason that we see in the Scriptures, and I think maybe even in the case of this passage, sometimes God is silent because He wants to test us and refine us. Sometimes God is silent because He wants to kind of reveal what's in our hearts. So when I was growing up, I played hockey. I started playing hockey when I was uh, about four years old. And so being that I was four years old when I started playing hockey, it wasn't like I just decided, like, hey, like, I just want to play hockey. I mean, it was something that was suggested, and uh, I started playing hockey. And I loved playing hockey. I loved, you know, the whole experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, and my parents were really encouraging and supporting. They, they went to most of my games and um, encouraged me to play. They didn't force me to play or anything like that. I could have quit if I wanted to. Um, but they just encouraged me in that. And I remember just, I loved playing hockey. I never even thought about not playing hockey. I mean, it never seriously crossed my mind. It was like I, I was a hockey player. And so I played up through high school. And then after high school, it was a little bit different. I uh, went to college, and I had an opportunity to try out for a, a college club team. Um, and once I got to college, my parents were just kind of a little bit more hands-off. They were a little bit more silent. They're just kind of like, you know, I mean, your life, your decision, you know, you have to pay for it. You know, you're the one that's going to be playing there. Like, you want to play or do you don't want to play? And they were just kind of a little bit more silent in that decision. And so I'm kind of debating, like, do I really want to play or not? And before, it was not even a question. And as I was just kind of walking through that, I started to realize something. I started to realize that I didn't really like hockey as much as I thought that I did. I mean, I, I like hockey. I like playing to this day. But uh, didn't like it as much as I thought that I did. And, and, and as, I, as I went through that episode, as my parents kind of took a, kind of a back seat, I started to realize something. I started to realize that the reason I liked to play hockey so much, it wasn't just the game. It was because it was something that I did with my dad. I liked going to games with my dad. I liked talking about the game with my dad. And so when he had kind of a little bit of distance, that it was my decision, it was my choice, that I, you know, I, there wasn't any encouragement either way, I started to realize, like, it's not really my thing. Like, I like playing sometimes, but I'm like, I don't want to devote myself to this. It was more about a relationship for me. And even to this day when I play, I like playing hockey, but I like playing because I play with my brother. You know, and so as they kind of took a back seat, it was revealed to me what was really in my heart. And sometimes I think the same thing is true with God. Sometimes God is silent, and then you know, as he's silent, as he kind of stands back a little bit, starts to you know, we have to kind of wrestle with what's really in our heart. Like, do we really want to follow after Jesus? Do we really want his heart? Do we really want to do what he wants us to do? Or are we just seeking him because we think that, you know, if we seek him, he's going to bless us? Are we just seeking him just because we want to go our own way and seeking confirmation? And so sometimes when God is silent in that wrestling, when we're struggling with, you know, God, what should I be doing? God, why are you allowing this to happen? You know, God can refine us. And hopefully as believers we get to a point where we're like, I don't know where to go. I don't know why maybe God is allowing this to happen. But what I do know is that I trust God. What I do know is that I believe God. What I do know is that I want God's best. What I do know is that I have a heart for God. And so the silence of God can refine us. Theologian Zaya Merrill's struggles eventually led him to consider Jesus' own experience. He said this, The greatest glory Jesus brought 
to God was not when he walked on the water or prayed for long hours, but when he cried in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and still continued to follow God's will. He did so even though it meant isolation, darkness, and the silence of God. Thus we know that when everything around us fails, when we're destroyed and abandoned, our tears are the greatest worship songs we have ever sung. And so the silence of God can refine us. And great faith endures even when God is silent. We see something else in this passage, and that is that great faith endures even when God says no. We all have requests that we make of God, and sometimes, you know, he's silent. Sometimes he gives a flat-out no. You know, sometimes we're praying for, you know, maybe it's for our finances, for healing, for relationships, personal growth. And God's just like, no, not happening. We pray for someone, they pass away. We pray for our finances, but a bill comes due, we don't have the money to pay. Why does God say no? Why does God say no? Well, he could say no for a number of reasons. As a human father, I say no to my son for a number of reasons. If he is about to run towards the road, I say no because I don't want him to get hurt. I care about him. Sometimes when he does something wrong, I have to say no because I'm trying to form him into the right kind of person. And so he says, if I, can I watch a movie, I'll say no, because I want him to make good choices, to be a person uh, of integrity. When he asked me, and he's literally asked me this before, can we go to Disney World on Friday? <laughs> I say, no, we can't. I mean, it, it would take us two days to drive there. We don't have the money to go there right now. We can't go there. It's not like a hard no. It's not like we can never go there again. But we can't go there on Friday. Sometimes, you know, if he's hurting someone else, hitting someone, I say no because I care about other people. I don't want him to be a person that hurts other people. Sometimes I say no because there's something that I know that he doesn't understand that he doesn't know. And so I say no to protect him. Sometimes I say no because, you know, I want him to be a person who values relationships and not just be interested in material things. Same way, there's many different reasons why God might say no. Again, look at our human relationships. If, if you were to tell a child no, how might they respond? They might try to circumvent you. They might say, well, you said no, but I'm going to do what I want anyways. Try to go around it. Sometimes we can do that with God. Sometimes we say God says no to us, and we try to go down that path anyways. We try to do our own thing. Um, if you tell a child no, they could kind of go along begrudgingly, feel like they don't have any choice, kind of kicking and screaming the whole way. Sometimes we can do that with God. It's like, all right, I'm just along for the ride, whatever. We have this attitude that we're just going along, you know, and, and just kind of, you know, begrudgingly going along. Another way a child might respond is they might turn around and turn on the father or mother. They might say, they might say I don't like you anymore. You know, or a teenager might tell their parents who's trying to, you know, direct them, say, I hate you, I don't want you around anymore. Might turn on the father or mother. Sometimes we can do that on God. God allows something or says no to something, and we turn around and turn it on him. And finally, they might say, and this is rare for human relationships for children, but you could say, okay, daddy, I'll do it, I'll listen because I know that you love me. 
And that's the response of great faith. Maybe we don't understand it, but we say, okay, I'm going to follow after you. Doesn't make sense to me, but I know that you love me. Ann Ortland tells about a um, pastor friend that she had, and this pastor had gone through one of the most difficult experiences of his life. Um, and they got together, and he asked her, what do you do when God doesn't say yes, doesn't give in, doesn't make it happen? And then he answered his own question. He said, through agony, I've gotten to know God better. I love him more. And then he showed Ann Ortland a piece of paper that he kept in his wallet. And it said this, look to his face, not to his hands. Great faith doesn't give up. Great faith doesn't question the character of God when God says no. Great faith endures even when God says no. And finally, we see in this passage that great faith is persistent and bold. This woman's persistence and boldness is incredible. We see this throughout the story. Even as she, the fact that she approaches Jesus is remarkable. That she being a Canaanite, the enemy of God, a person who is wicked, approaching the sinless son of God and requesting something of him. It's incredible boldness. And we see throughout the scripture that God calls us to incredible boldness and incredible persistence. We see this in a number of different situations. We see in Luke chapter 11 that Jesus talks about a person who makes a, a request of his friend at midnight. He has guests coming in and he says, uh, he talks about this friend going to his neighbor's house, knocking on the door when all of his family is asleep, waking them up and asking them for bread. It's incredible boldness, but that's the kind of boldness that God calls us to. And after telling that episode, Jesus gives the admonition in Luke chapter 11, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Likewise, Luke 18 says this, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? <coughs> now don't get sidetracked by this story. God isn't the judge in this story. God isn't the judge. Rather, he's the opposite of the judge. He's the one who gives judgment, gives justice. Yet the story tells us faith is marked by persistence. Jesus closes the story with the following sobering words. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find great faith? Will he find little faith? George Mueller was, um, he was a man who started an orphanage many, different, many years ago. And at one point he had a thousand orphans he was taking care of. And uh, one particular morning, he didn't have enough food for them. And he was probably wondering, like, God, why are you allowing this to happen? God, you know, I put myself out there. I have all these mouths to feed. 
and I don't have enough. I don't have food for them. But instead of kind of complaining against God, he gathered all the children together, and they prayed, and they didn't pray for food. They thanked God for the food that God was going to provide. A few minutes later, a baker knocked on the door, said, you know, I, I was at my house last night, and I felt like God was leading me to come and give bread to the orphanage. Before they even served the children, a milkman came and walked in the door and said, my truck broke down, got all this milk, it's going to go bad, could you guys use it? Brought the milk in. Now, I think it'd be naive to think that that happened every single time. I'm sure there was times where they went hungry. But he chose to trust in God anyways. Chose to trust in God even though it seemed like God wasn't working. And kind of to bring this all together, great faith is trusting God even when we don't understand it. Great faith is trusting God even when we don't understand it. So the question is, when Christ comes back, will he find faith? Will he find great faith? Will he find little faith? Let's pray. <coughs> Dear Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your great unfathomable grace. We thank you that you love those who are even far from you. We thank you that you love your enemies, that you loved even Canaanites, and we know that that's hope for all of us, that all of us by nature and by our choices are sinners separated from you. But we thank you that you came to the earth and gave your body, shed your blood so that we could have life. We thank you that there is enough at your table. That even the crumbs are enough for us to satisfy our souls. Lord, help us to be people of great faith. Help us to trust in you, to endure even when you're silent. Help us to trust in you, endure even when you say no. And Lord, help us to never give up. To be persistent and bold in coming to you in faith. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.